0: Our reading today is taken from 1 Samuel chapter 7, verses 2 to 17, and it can be found in the Pew Bibles on page 277 or on your sheet. So reading from 1 Samuel chapter 7, starting at verse 2. The ark remained at kiriath Jearim a long time, twenty years in all. Then all the people of Israel turned back to the Lord. So Samuel said to all the Israelites, If you are returning to the Lord with all your hearts, then rid yourselves of the foreign gods and the Ashtoreths, and commit yourselves to the Lord, and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines." So the Israelites put away their Baals and Ashtoreths and served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, Assemble all Israel at Mizpah, and I will intercede with the Lord for you. When they had assembled at Mizpah, they drew water and poured it out before the Lord. On that day they fasted, and there they confessed, We have sinned against the Lord. Now Samuel was serving as leader of Israel at Mizpah. When the Philistines heard that that Israel had assembled at Mizpah, the rulers of the Philistines came up to attack them. When the Israelites heard of it, they were afraid because of the Philistines. They said to Samuel, Do not stop crying out to the Lord our God for us, that he may rescue us from the hand of the Philistines. Then Samuel took a suckling lamb and sacrificed it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. He cried out to the Lord on Israel's behalf, and the Lord answered him. While Samuel was sacrificing the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to engage Israel in battle. But that day the Lord thundered with loud thunder against the Philistines and threw them into such a panic that they were routed before the Israelites. The men of Israel rushed out of Mizpah and pursued the Philistines, slaughtering them along the way to a point below Beth-Kah. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen. He named it Ebenezer, saying... Thus far, the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued, and they stopped invading Israel's territory. Throughout Samuel's lifetime, the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines. The towns from Ekron to Gath that the Philistines had captured from Israel were restored to Israel, and Israel delivered the neighboring territory from the hands of the Philistines. And there was peace. Between Israel and the Amorites. Samuel continued as Israel's leader all the days of his life. From year to year, he went on a circuit from Bethel to Gilgal to Mizpah, judging Israel in all those places. But he always went back to Ramah, where his home was, and there he also held court for Israel, and he built an altar there to the Lord.
1: Thank you, Jean. Good morning, everyone. Thank you so much for having me to uh, speak to you this morning. Um, do keep those, um, those words open in front of you uh, as we plunge into God's word now. And um, why don't I begin by praying. Heavenly Father, as we come to your word this morning, we pray by your spirit that you would give us what we do not have. That you would teach us what we do not know. And that you would make us what we are not yet. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, the first thing I'd like us to do this morning as we come to 1 Samuel chapter 7 is to play a game of spot the difference. Because you may have noticed, as we heard that passage read, that the events in chapter 7 are an almost exact rerun of events in chapter 4. Only with a startlingly different outcome. In both chapters, Israel is battling against the Philistines. In both chapters, the battles involve a place called Ebenezer. In both chapters, the battles end in a great slaughter, with great victory for one army and great defeat for the other. The crucial difference, of course, is that here in chapter 7, it's Israel on the winning side and not the Philistines. God this time does not give his people over to defeat, but gets for them the victory. So the big question I think the passage wants us to consider is simply this. What's changed? How have Israel suddenly gone from zero to hero? Is it upgraded weapons or improved military tactics? What is it? Well, the answer for us is in verses 3 and 4. Let me just read those quickly again. So, Samuel said to all the Israelites... If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then rid yourselves of the foreign gods and the Ashtoreths and commit yourselves to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hands of the Philistines. So the Israelites put away their Baals and Ashtoreths and served the Lord only. This is a passage all about the difference that true repentance makes. In chapter 4, Israel trusted merely in the symbol of God's gracious presence in the ark. Whereas now here in chapter 7 they experience the reality. Then their spiritual guides were the wicked Hophni and Phinehas. Now their guide is faithful Samuel. Then they had rushed into the fight in thoughtless unconcern about their sin. Now they confess their sins, and through the blood of a sacrifice, obtain forgiveness. Then they were puffed up by presumption. Now they're animated by a calm but confident hope. Then they thought not to offer any prayer. But now through Samuel, sincere prayer rises to heavens. the heavens. Then they thought victory will come through the people of God on their feet, Now they discover victory comes through the servant of God on his knees. This is a passage about the difference that repentance makes. In the life of the nation of Israel then, and in the life of the church, in the lives of each one of us now. So three um, brief points as we dwell in God's word this morning to help us unpack it together. First, real repentance. Secondly, real remembrance. And thirdly, a real redeemer. First, real repentance. As we rejoin this story in chapter 7, we find the Israelites in a bit of a spiritual rut. Last week we heard how the Ark of the Covenant is finally returned to them, how the men of Kiriath-Jerim brought it safely to Abinadab's house and consecrated his son to guard it. And surely we think this is wonderful news and all is right with the world once again, and spiritual revival is just around the corner. But verse 2 pours a massive vat of cold water over all of that optimism. It simply says, The ark remained at Kiriath-Jerim a long time, 20 years in all. 20 years of a nation's life covered in 11 words in Hebrew. Nothing whatsoever of spiritual merit happened in that time. It was rather like five days spent at General Synod. At no point... During those 20 years, did kiriath Jirim become the seat of national worship? There's no word of sacrifices ever being performed there, annual feasts ever being celebrated. There was no attempt to move the Ark to a more suitable place, because Kiriath-Jerim was right on the edge of the country, close to the Philistine cities where it had been captured, where it had been captive, far from the centre of the Israelites' territory. The Ark of the Covenant had a resting place, but nothing more. For 20 years, it gathered dust. That ark that once inspired terror among the Philistines could now only inspire apathy among the Israelites. The people of God no longer hankered after the ark in an inappropriate way. They simply did not hanker after it at all. Here then were 20 years of listlessness in Israel's spiritual life. 20 dreary years. God's people, you might say, were under a double bondage. Two great enemies held them in subjection in those years. The Philistines, who continued to dominate their land, and the foreign gods, who continued to dominate their hearts. Now, Samuel was probably preaching from place to place throughout these years, but Israel evidently wasn't very interested in listening. And yet, then, just then, a hint, a flicker, of something new, the first bud of a spiritual springtime pushing its way through the soil. We read, Then all the people of Israel turned back to the Lord. Evidently, the abject squalor of their situation had finally sunk in their broken relationship with God, had finally hit home, and Israel begins to lament. She begins to feel sorrow for her sins. She begins to long after her Lord and to long for his return but isn't it striking that Samuel's response to this is that he's not convinced this is yet real repentance that's the challenge of verse 3 he says to the Israelites if you're returning to the Lord with all your heart then rid yourselves of the foreign gods and the Ashtoreths and commit yourselves to the Lord and serve him only only as it were underlined in bold in other words Samuel is not satisfied with mere earnestness in the hearts of the people mere emotional frothiness, mere skin deep response religious feelings are not in themselves evidence of true repentance now repentance may begin with tears and sobs and sorrows but true repentance never ends there we can each of us be moved without being changed And from Samuel's words, it appears that what was holding the Israelites back from real repentance was their desire to come back to the Lord, but still to hold on to their old idols too. They wanted to hedge their spiritual bets and keep a foot in both camps. The prodigal son had turned and was walking back towards his father, but he was carrying the pig trough on his back and the husks in his pockets. And that's why the focus of Samuel's exhortation is on undivided, wholehearted commitment to the Lord and to him only. Real repentance for Samuel means returning to the Lord with all our heart and forsaking those counterfeit gods that we have put in his place. The fruit of real repentance is not merely feeling repentant, it is the tangible, concrete actions by which we put away our false gods. As the old hymn puts it, The dearest idol I have known, whate'er that idol be, help me to tear it from thy throne and worship only thee. Real repentance is costly repentance. And the brevity of verse 4 shouldn't obscure the hit the Israelites took here. So the Israelites put away their Baals and Ashtoreths and served the Lord only. And 3,000 years distant from these events, it can be easy to dismiss this as merely chucking out a few city statues, doing a bit of spring cleaning. But this change would not have been easy for the Israelites. Baal was the Canaanite god of nature and storms. And the word given here as Ashtoreth refers to the Ugaritic fertility goddess Astarte. Now, in one sense, that pairing is just a shorthand way of encompassing all the false gods that Israel worshipped. But the choice of those two gods, I think, points us to the particular nature of their hold over the Israelites. Because, in Canaanite religion, Ashtoreth was understood as Baal's female consort. And the continued fertility of everyone's crops, and everyone's livestock, and everyone's families, depended on their sexual relationship continuing. To encourage this congress, the Canaanites practised sexual prostitution as part of their worship. So a Canaanite man would go to a Baal shrine and have intercourse with one of the sacred prostitutes who served there. So the man fulfilled Baal's role and the woman Ashtoreth's, in the hope that Baal and Ashtoreth would see this as a kind of copulatory encouragement and go and do likewise and so bring fruitfulness to the land. How convenient for both church and brothel to be in one location. How congenial to have this combination of liturgy and orgy. And how severe and straight-laced and self-denying the worship of Yahweh must have seemed by comparison. What's more, the worship of the pagan nations was not only more lively and more attractive and more fashionable, and its entertainments and revelries perfectly tailored to the carnally-minded Israelite, It was also more tolerant and broader and more inclusive. The Canaanites, after all, had nothing against Yahweh. In fact, they were happy to welcome him in to their polytheistic panoply. They were just kindly offering some additional midweek services of their own. It was not easy for the Israelites to move away from the grip of a cult that pleased their desires and promised it would cause their crops to grow. And that's why the focus of, Yahweh's, uh, of Samuel's call to repentance is on serving Yahweh alone. Because the God whom Israel worshipped was very different from the gods of the surrounding nations. Only he made this call to complete and exclusive faithfulness. Only in Israel do we meet, as it were, a jealous God who loves his people too much to tolerate them cosy up to his rivals. Only in Israel do we find a God who has no wife, no consort, who does not need to be coerced, but only to be trusted. Who does not pulsate through nature, but rules from a throne, high and lifted up. All of which is to say, then, that ridding ourselves of our idols, doing what Israel did in verse 4, will be hard. This is for each of us costly repentance. It's not so much about statues. As about cardiology, not a mere return to outward moral decency, as a call to be spiritually undivided, a deep heart change away from those things that compete in our lives for our worship. So let me encourage you as we think about this passage this morning to to search our hearts, to think about our own inner worlds, how we tick from Monday to Saturday and not just on a Sunday. Can we identify those good things that in practice we deify and we allow to become ultimate things in our lives? It might be financial security, or health, or our careers, or our family life, or our reputation, our popularity, or fulfilling our potential. The things that control our hearts, that we love and trust and obey, that give us our sense of value and beauty and make us feel safe and happy These are our idols. And these false gods both bind us and they blind us. They are very hard to relinquish. Tim Keller put it like this. The sin that is killing you the most right now is probably the one you are most defensive about. Samuel then calls the people to a concrete and costly repentance. Put aside your false gods. Get rid of those false confidences. Give your hearts to God alone. Because while you continue to tolerate cohabitation with these other loves, it will never change. A spiritually divided heart will end up holding you back from true freedom in Christ. Real repentance is costly repentance. It's also, and I'll I'll speed up a bit more, um, corporate repentance. Let's have a look at verse 5 quickly. Then Samuel said, Assemble all Israel at Mizpah, and I will intercede with the Lord for you. When they had assembled at Mizpah, they drew water and poured it out before the Lord. On that day they fasted, and there they confessed, We have sinned against the Lord. So there is a corporate aspect to this repentance. When we confess our sins, it can be so helpful and so encouraging to do so in the supportive presence of other believers. The people of God here humbled themselves in deep conviction of their unworthiness. They fasted, they confessed, they poured out their hearts in repentance and mourning before the Lord. Picture it here in the, the pouring out of water. It's no wonder that Cranmer put corporate confession of sins front and centre of the Church of England's liturgy. Such a great encouragement to be able to gather and to confess our sins together and to know God's forgiveness. One last thing to add on this point. This costly corporate repentance was also, at least in the short term, calamitous repentance. The people of God finally returned to him... the immediate consequence is not to restore their fortunes, but to plunge them into another war. Verse 7, when the Philistines heard that Israel had assembled at Mizpah, the rulers of the Philistines came up to attack them. When the Israelites heard of it, they were afraid because of the Philistines. So this church revival meeting at Mizpah gives rise only to a new Philistine invasion. Thanks, Samuel. The Israelites' faith is immediately tested But see now the contrast from their condition in chapter 4. Israel's position was, humanly speaking, more vulnerable than ever. But spiritually, they are now on much firmer ground. Unlike chapter 4, they now look to prayer and not to furniture. They begin to get their priorities right. And they beseech Samuel to praise the Lord to rescue them. He sacrifices a lamb to the Lord... And he cries out on their behalf, and the Lord answers them. Even as the Philistines approach closer and closer, the Israelites do not begin redding their horses or sharpening their weapons. No, they carry on with their devotions to the Lord. And it's the Lord who comes forth as their helper. The Israelites don't issue a war cry, but only the voice of prayer. And it's the Lord who thunders. Israel is no longer dabbling in religious magic, but walking by sheer faith. Well, much more briefly, we find in this passage that real repentance bears fruit in two things, in stimulating real remembrance and in pointing us to a real redeemer. Real remembrance, for that we need verse 12. After all of this, Samuel takes a stone and sets it up between Mizpah and Shen. He named it Ebenezer saying, thus far the Lord has helped us. Israel has won a great victory, and immediately they memorialise it. We can be remarkably forgetful of God's blessings and mercies to us in the past, and Samuel knows the more we have those mercies in remembrance, the more we gain confidence for today and for tomorrow too. As we look back, we can take heart as we remember, thus far the Lord has helped us, thus far the Lord has helped me, and he will continue to do so. Thus far, this memorial is it's not a one-off, it's not disconnected, it rather denotes a chain of similar mercies, an unbroken succession of acts of divine grace that make up the golden thread to each of our lives. The purpose of the Ebenezer Stone is to link this present deliverance to all the past ones. That it might stand as a testimony to the enduring faithfulness of our covenant-keeping God. And note the spot where the stone is set up is the same place where Hopni and Phinehas had 20 years before been slain. The same place where the Ark had been captured. The same place where the Philistines had triumphed. But God in his good timing has made it into the place of renewed covenant. So often God's victories in our lives will come by way of our defeats. I personally found it hugely helpful as a practice over the last few months to keep a journal of thanksgiving, a little reminder of those daily mercies of God that I know I would otherwise forget. Because it's memory that keeps gratitude fresh and gratitude that keeps faith faithful. And in the harder times. Those memories can be the memorial that sustains us. Thus far, also reminds us, the stone is not the end of the story. There is still a distance yet to be traversed for the people of God. After Ebenezer, there will be more trials, more joys, more temptations, more trials, more prayers, more answers, more toils, more strength. More slanders, more comforts, more deep waters, more high mountains. But God is with us. And even with our last breath, we can raise one more stone and we can shout Ebenezer, even there. For there is yet more to come. Our passage tells us about real repentance and real remembrance. And finally, as I close, it points us, I think, to a real redeemer. Because at the heart of this story, in 1 Samuel chapter 7, is a sacrifice. As the Philistine army advanced on the Israelite camp at Mizpah, as the outward circumstances of the Israelites worsen, it's the sacrifice that Samuel has his eyes fixed upon. Only after offering the blood of the Lamb does Samuel cry out and is heard by heaven. Samuel, in this chapter, acts for his people as their priestly mediator, not only offering the sacrifice, but interceding with God on the people's behalf. He acts as a prophet, bringing God's word to God's people. And he acts as their ruler or their king. He leads them in justice. He leads them in righteousness. And this prophet, priest, and king, through his faithfulness, gains the victory and brings deliverance to God's people. In this chapter, Samuel points us to the Christ who is to come. Because it's through Christ's atoning sacrifice for sin, through his own blood shed upon the cross, that he won for us the victory over sin and death, and opened a new and living way into God's presence forever. Risen and ascended, Jesus is now our great high priest, who ever lives to make intercession for us, we too can look to the prayers of another and know that they are always effectual. Here then is the real Redeemer, the true Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. We know that if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. But we also can be reassured that in coming to Christ in real repentance and in casting aside our false gods, we can know forgiveness of sins and be welcomed into God's family securely and forever. Our rock of remembrance, our Ebenezer, is the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. For there, above all, we can look and know that the Lord has helped us and won for us the victory. And in the Holy Communion that we come in a moment to share, we can have tangible tokens of that redemption won for us, We have in bread and wine a memorial that sustains us for the journey to come. So I'm going to stop there and hand back to Gideon, but I suggest that a helpful thing in this passage that might stimulate us now is to come to God in corporate repentance, and so Gideon's going to lead us.